Hey everyone, I'm Nate Vineo, and this is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for the Christian with a short attention span or just short on time, designed to give you something to mentally or spiritually chew on throughout your day, a Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. This episode is The Irony of Peace. If I consulted Webster's Dictionary for the definition of peace, you would find a state of tranquility, absence of war, a pact to end a war, freedom from disorderly disturbances, and freedom from worries. But is this a biblically accurate definition of peace? If I went a bit woke for a moment and shared my personal idea of peace with you, as if it really mattered, it would be a sunny alpine meadow in the Bob Marshall Wilderness with bear grass, Indian paintbrushes, and the bitterate flower in bloom. I'd be walking at a subtle pace, taking in the thin, crisp air of the Rockies and packing my five-piece fly rod in search of a high mountain lake to fish. It truly is my happy place. I lose all thought of outside life at that moment. I would say that, in those moments, I'm at peace. I'm so enveloped in God's goodness, in the beauty of His creation, that every ill is drowned out. But that may not be an accurate or biblically complete picture of peace. In the Old Testament, shalom is the word for peace, and it carried a deeper connotation than the absence of conflict or the state of inner calm. As always, a blunt disclaimer here, I would add that I'm no Hebrew scholar, but on days when my allergies are particularly bad and my sinuses are particularly full, I could pronounce Hebrew words with the best of them. But as I best understand the use of the word shalom, it's used as an all-encompassing blessing, as if to say, may God rest upon your heart and your mind and on every situation of your life, bringing a sense of peace and safety that inner calm over relationships and stress and work and finances, etc., etc., it's all-encompassing. I like to say, if you can worry about it, God's peace can cover it. If you dig Shalom up in the Strong's Concordance, number 7965 for all of you old-school academics, you'll find the broad definition and usage to include safe, for example, well, happy, or friendly. Also, welfare, for example, health and prosperity and rest. And an overall sense of wholeness and blessing. But in addition to the linguistic translation of Hebrew to English, I always like to take the next step and read it in different contexts to get a feel for the sense in which it's used. And what you find is that peace is not just the absence of something like conflict. Peace is not just a feeling based on outer circumstances. Biblical peace is an internal condition that exists regardless of external conflict and is accentuated in conflict. It is better seen in contrast when conflict is present. For instance, a great picture of peace is Jesus sleeping in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And thus begins the irony of peace.
Shalom is the word used in Jeremiah 29.11 when God says to the Israelites, who, oddly enough, were beginning their exile or a, what I would call a 70-year timeout in Babylon. But he says, quote, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to give you peace. Now, there's more there, and we'll get to it in a moment, but that's where that word shows up. Think about this declaration for a moment, though. God is saying, you shall have peace in captivity, in a heathen land, in an idolatrous land, in a time of punishment and correction, you will have peace. How does that happen? It's certainly no alpine meadow. I think this is one of the most subtly misrepresented passages in Scripture. The verse has been hijacked by the prosperity crowd. In practical terms, the definition of shalom has been edited with the Webster's Dictionary absence of conflict phrase, and the financial or material blessing dynamic has become the focus. And what you end up with is a completely inaccurate understanding of what God was saying to the exiles. When you read Jeremiah, chapters 25 through chapter 29, you'll find the context of this letter from Jeremiah comes on the heels of false prophets in Babylon prophesying to the exiles that they would endure a little bit of conflict, a little bit of hardship, and we'll be out of here in just a few years at most. The correction comes when God speaks to them through Jeremiah saying, settle in. You're going to be in a state of captivity here in Babylon for 70 years at a minimum. If you live 70 years, you will not be victorious in a traditional sense over the Babylonians. And practically speaking, let's do a bit of math here for a second. If you're over 20 years of age, you may never see Jerusalem again. Unless, of course, you want to make a 900-mile journey on foot at the age of 90 or better. The Israelites will not experience peace based upon a worldly sense of victory. But they can and will experience peace through submission and obedience, both to God and to the Babylonians. Too often we define peace as the absence of certain circumstances or conditions. Rather than that, peace should be defined as the presence of someone in the midst of those circumstances or conditions. In the same way that the presence of light dispels darkness, so God's presence dispels the angst, the depression, the oppression, the despair that comes from conflict in worldly conditions. We see God bring peace to Daniel in the lion's den. We see God bring peace to Rakshak and Benny in the fiery furnace. And we hear Isaiah prophesy that God would, quote, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. That's Isaiah 26.3 out of the King James Version. It doesn't say that he remedies every situation, just that God keeps him in perfect peace. And the biblical record confirms that this peace comes regardless of the situation. It's an internal mental, and spiritual peace. You cannot interpret the word shalom in Jeremiah 29 if your idea of peace is circumstantial, material, and experiential. 
You insult the memory of every Jew who died in Babylon if you do. Babylon was a time of correction. Taking a group of people whose minds had become so focused on themselves in their idolatry and sin and putting them in a situation where they could be retrained to focus their hearts and their minds on God and what He had for them. And let's be honest. After the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, there are three possible outcomes if you're a Jew. First, you died in your sin in the battle and you're lost forever. Secondly, you could have survived the battle and you're allowed to stay in Jerusalem, but you lack any degree of defense and you're perpetually being bombarded and abused by other people groups that take advantage of you and oppress you. And you die of disease and in despair. Or lastly, you could have been in the group that survived the battle, but were escorted to the prosperous land and allowed to build homes, marry, build families, and find a new level of success and prosperity, even though it was in a heathen land. And an odd side note here. Do you remember Pippin, the happy-go-lucky hobbit from Lord of the Rings? If he was making the 900-mile trek to Babylon, I can imagine him repeating a line, from the two towers, encouraging his Jewish brethren, the closer we are to danger, the farther we are from harm. That was the line he delivered to the Ents as they were heading toward Isengard in the movie, if you remember that. But uh, anyhow, all joking aside, in the time of the exile, the safest place to be a Jew was in Babylon. But those lucky hobbits were having a hard time seeing that precious little factoid. Too many people only read verse 11. For I know the plans and thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for peace and well-being and not for disaster and for a future and a hope, end quote. Too many people stop there, make a meme or a t-shirt or a poster for their wall and think that by their mere existence or earthly citizenship, they deserve this peace holding out their hand and expecting it just because. And they're disheartened because they didn't read any further. They're disheartened because it's out of the pain of the exile and this time out in Babylon that God is hoping to see the Israelites turn back to him, to invite God into their mess. And that's when the peace really happens. Let's keep reading verse 12 and 13 in the Amplified Version. Then you will call on me, and you will come and pray to me, and I will hear your voice, and I will listen to you. Then, with a deep longing, you will seek me and require me as a vital necessity. You will find me when you search for me with all your heart. Can I just plainly point out here that the goal is that we call out to God, seek Him, pray to Him, to finally see Him as vital to every part of our existence, and He promises He will hear us and listen, that we would seek Him out with a deep intention, not some worn-out, rote habit of repetitious and hollow prayer or powerless religious habit. Some of you may think that this next comment is just too negative, but it's just a historical observation, notwithstanding the fact that 
before verse 11, Jeremiah says it directly and prophetically, but no matter how quickly the exiles turn their hearts and their minds to calling out to God, none of them would head back to Jerusalem any sooner than 70 years. Consequently, we understand that peace then isn't defined or measured by your circumstances, it's defined by your intimacy with God. That's the irony. You can be in captivity and have peace. You can be in the middle of discipline or correction and have peace. You can have intimacy with God despite your external circumstances. This is the first irony. One popular passage in the New Testament about peace is Philippians 4, 7, and in the Amplified it says, quote, And the peace of God, that peace which reassures the heart, that peace, which transcends all understanding, that peace which stands guard over your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus, is yours, end quote. But an ironic twist takes place for this to happen, and thus begins the second irony. Peace doesn't just happen. Sometimes varying degrees of conflict happen to produce peace. In the grand scheme of things, we live in relative peace because there are those who fight for or stand guard over us in some degree of conflict or tension, whether soldier, civic leader, pastor, parent, or boss, etc. Paul grabs a hold of this irony when he writes in Romans 16.20, quote, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What an interesting picture. The God of peace committing quite an act of violence. This violates a worldly understanding of peace, but it brings peace. And as I've mentioned before, we think of peace as the absence of conflict, but more times than not, it's the proper and continuous handling of conflict that brings peace. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't say, quote, If you're experiencing peace, you're blessed, although there's an obvious blessing there. He said, If you're making peace happen and keeping it in place, you will be blessed. Because that job's not easy. I tip my hat to people who keep the peace in their families. I tip my hat to church elders who work tirelessly to keep the church unified, free from division, and making the church a peaceful place to hear the Word of God accurately proclaimed. I tip my hat to those of you who serve our country abroad and at home. You are peacemakers and peacekeepers. You live in the conflict while we live in relative peace. What irony, right? The peacemaker is the one who experiences the least amount of the peace they provide. Gnaw on that one for a bit. What a way to frame Jesus' ministry dynamic. He stepped into ministry, and it was conflict from day one. Temptation from Satan, constant bombardment from the Pharisees, family members who goaded him, and I would imagine that it broke Mary's heart to see her sons in conflict during Jesus' ministry in the years before. And then there were the followers who ebbed and flowed in their commitment. And then comes the brutal crucifixion that, ironically, 
brought us peace with God. You need to take a minute and read Isaiah 53, verse 5. And the Prince of Peace, on the night of the Last Supper, after dinner, after calling the traitor Judas out, after having a particularly difficult conversation with Peter about him and the other disciples denying him and being scattered by Satan. You can reread that in John 13 if you like. But with this as the backdrop and the impending events of the crucifixion in front of him, the beating, the flogging, the whipping, the denials, the crown of thorns, the mockery, with all of that in front of him, Jesus drops this beautiful truth bomb on him. Quote, peace I leave with you. My perfect peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. And the Amplified adds it or rephrases it this way. Let my perfect peace calm you in every circumstance and give you courage and strength for every challenge. That's John 14. 27. So as I wrap up this episode, what is God speaking to you today? Are you stuck in the first irony of peace where you need God's peace in a chaotic situation? Or are you stuck in the second irony of peace where you provide peace, but you need that peace yourself? Do you need to experience peace despite the circumstances you're in today, a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that is unexplainable but thoroughly sufficient. God is certainly faithful to do His part. Remember the promise of Isaiah 26.3. This time I'll read from the Amplified Version, quote, You will keep in perfect and constant peace the one whose mind is steadfast, that is, committed and focused on you in both inclination and character, because he trusts and takes refuge in you with hope and confident expectation. And remember Jesus' words, Let my perfect peace calm you. I'm Nate Vinio, and this has been Something to Gnaw On. Until next week, shalom, peace, God bless.